The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Marlene Warren was busy preparing breakfast on Saturday, May 26, 1990 in South Florida, when her doorbell suddenly rang. Excited to see who was at the front door, Marlene dropped everything to answer it and was ecstatic when she saw who was standing outside. However, what transpired in the seconds that followed quickly turned a moment of elation into pure terror. Join me now as we take a look into the perplexing and tragic case of Marlene Warren, a devoted wife and loving mother who lived for her family. You'll hear how an elaborate scheme devised out of greed and deception robbed a son of his mother while a murderer remained at large and free to live a life unscathed for decades. Marlene Warren was born on April 15, 1950, to parents Shirley and Leonard McKinnon in Mount Clemens, Macomb County, Michigan. Although Shirley and Leonard's relationship didn't last, Marlene still had the opportunity to live with a loving father figure when her mother, Shirley, married a man named Bill Twing. When she was a young girl, Marlene was energetic, even rambunctious. She enjoyed spending every moment outside and involved herself in adventures rivaling Tom Sawyer. Throughout her school years, Marlene proved herself to be a good person who was tremendously outgoing and loved being around other people. In part, due to her social gregarious nature, Marlene developed a deep love for something that over the years has lost its original innocent perception partly due to true crime and pop culture. Clowns. Marlene loved them so much, in fact, that she would often make drawings or paintings of them while she was in high school. Marlene also inspired joy in others, so it made sense that she was drawn to clowns and their ability to entertain. When Marlene was just a teenager, she got married and quickly had two sons, Johnny and Joe. Unfortunately, it didn't take long before her marriage fell apart. By the early 70s, the young mother was on her own, trying to care for two young boys. But regardless of the challenges she faced, Marlene was determined to center her life on her two sons. People couldn't help but notice how much she doted on them, always putting their needs ahead of her own. A little later on, Marlene met a man named Mike Warren, and her future suddenly looked much brighter. They immediately fell in love with each other, 
and Marlene considered her new love interest to be a hard-working, loving individual who she believed could help take care of her two young boys. After a whirlwind romance, 20-year-old Marlene was married for the second time. Mike embraced taking on the father figure role for Johnny and Joe. Thinking back, Joe recalled how close he was to Mike, stating, When we were younger, he was great and the only dad I knew. Together, the Warrens built an impressive empire and a life many would envy. The couple owned numerous businesses together, including Bargain Motors. Bargain Motors was a company that rented out and sold used cars at a high interest rate, primarily to people with bad credit. In addition, Marlene and Mike owned several rental properties in West Palm Beach that Marlene looked after. She dealt with the tenants, collected rent, sourced repairs, and performed all the other miscellaneous duties expected of a landlord. Because of their success, the pair also managed to own extravagant extras, including racehorses and an airplane, not to mention their beautifully landscaped home, located on the aptly named Takeoff Place within the Aero Club in Wellington, Florida. Considered a hidden jewel in the crown of Palm Beach County, living in the Aero Club at the time said to the world, you had attained wealth and power. Many of the homes located in the exclusive non-gated neighborhood even had their own airplane taxiways in their backyards, leading to a private 4,000-foot community landing strip. Marlene comfortably fit into the high-class neighborhood and was thought to be a pleasant and friendly woman who always smiled and waved to her neighbors. On the other hand, Mike never seemed to quite fit in. A friend of the family described Mike as the sort of person that had that used car, rent-a-wreck kind of personality, which made it seem like he was out of his social element. In any case, the Warrens appeared happy, were doing well financially, and were lovingly raising Marlene's two sons. But in the fall of 1988, tragedy struck the family when Marlene's oldest son, Johnny, who was 22 at the time, was killed in a car accident. The sudden loss was devastating for both Marlene and Mike, and their overwhelming grief slowly began to erode away their marriage. Despite spending more and more time away from the family, the couple was reluctant to call it quits and stayed together. On Saturday, May 26, 1990, at the start of a warm Memorial Day weekend, and less than two years after the heartbreaking death of Johnny, Marlene was at home with her youngest son, Joe, and a few of his friends. Because Joe had recently been injured and had a cast on one of his legs, Marlene was only happy to make breakfast for him and his pals. The day before, her husband Mike had left with some friends on a road trip to the Calder Racetrack in Miami, leaving Marlene and her son to mull over their plans for the weekend. At 11 a.m., just as everyone was getting ready to sit down to eat, Marlene spotted an unusual figure 
approaching their front door. Pointing outside, she exclaimed to Joe and his guests, Look at that clown! As the group looked out the window, they all watched as a person dressed in a clown costume made their way to the front door, carrying balloons and flowers. As the doorbell rang, Marlene rushed to answer it. And sure enough, standing on her front doorstep was a clown, dressed in full costume, with a white painted face, a red bulb nose, an orange wig, and a giant red smile. Joe and his friends heard Marlene exclaim, Oh, how pretty, as the clown handed her a basket of red and white carnations and two helium balloons. One balloon was round and silver, with the image of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves on it, and the other balloon was red, heart-shaped, and emblazoned with the phrase, You're the greatest. But as Marlene was happily accepting the gifts, the clown suddenly pulled out a gun and pointed it at her head and without any hesitation pulled the trigger. When the shot rang out, Joe and his friends were startled but assumed that one of the helium balloons must have popped. But after Joe saw his mother crumple to the floor, he knew something terrible had just happened. Without saying a word, the clown calmly turned around and walked to a white Chrysler LeBaron that had been left parked in the driveway. Hindered by his cast, Joe hobbled after the clown as quickly as he could and noticed the car had been left running and the driver's side door left open. Joe yelled after the clown until the individual finally glanced back at him but the only identifiable feature Joe could make out was the clown's dark brown eyes peering back through the makeup. The clown jumped into the Chrysler and drove away. At the same time Joe had followed after the clown, his friends had ran over to help Marlene, but when they rolled her over, they could see that there was blood everywhere and a hole in her upper lip where the bullet had entered. A neighbor, who had come over to see what all the commotion was, dialed 911, and Joe and one of his friends jumped into one of their vehicles in pursuit of the clown. But after a quick search of the area, the clown was nowhere to be found. While Joe and his friends continued searching for the killer clown, the number of neighbors congregating at the Warrens' house had grown including one who was even a doctor. Without any medical equipment on him, the doctor used a spoon to try to pry open Marlene's airway. Finally, the paramedics arrived on the scene and the police shortly after. When Joe returned back to the house, detectives were cordoning off the scene and his mother, who was still clinging to life, was being prepped to be taken to the hospital for emergency surgery. Initially, the police were baffled. The clown had left hardly any evidence behind at the crime scene, and because of the face paint, wig, and costume, Joe and his friends weren't even sure of the perpetrator's gender. All the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department could do at the time 
was issue a be on the lookout for a white Chrysler LeBaron driven by an armed and dangerous clown. The authorities managed to finally get in touch with Marlene's husband Mike to inform him about the shooting. But by that point, he was miles away from the home and on his way to the horse races with friends. Nevertheless, he quickly turned around and rushed to the hospital to be with his wife. Marlene's family spent the next three days by her bedside, hoping and praying she would pull through. The doctors determined she had a bullet lodged in her spinal cord and it was necessary to put her on life support. Her prognosis was grim. Joe stayed in his mom's hospital room for hours upon hours, holding her hand and begging her to wake up and stay with him. Sadly, Marlene was unable to recover from her injuries and died on May 28, 1990. A nightmare that began with a clown showing up with flowers and balloons wouldn't end for Marlene's family for decades to come. The Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office now had a murder case on its hands. Bob Farrell, the department spokesperson, stressed how odd it was that the killer never uttered a single word during the crime. Farrell told reporters, This is the strangest thing I've seen in my 19 years of law enforcement, and it certainly seems well planned out. When they first arrived at the scene of the crime, the police had little to go on, but within hours of the shooting, they received an anonymous tip from a female caller. The tipster suggested that Mike had been having an affair with one of his employees, a woman named Sheila Keene. The caller wondered if the affair might have had something to do with Marlene's murder. Happy to have a solid lead, the investigators looked into Sheila Keene. Sheila was considered a Glades girl. She was raised on the outskirts of the Everglades, close to Lake Okeechobee. Considered an attractive country girl, men seemed to be drawn to Sheila. Those who knew her found her to be driven, fearless, and tough as nails. Sheila had married her first husband, Richard Keene, in 1987. While married to Richard, Sheila began working at Mike's Bargain Motors, and was hired to repossess cars from people who had failed to make their payments. A position well-suited for someone with Sheila's gutsy take-charge attitude. According to numerous witnesses, when Sheila and Richard's marriage ended in January of 1990, she set her sights on Mike. Employees at Bargain Motors reported that the pair had been caught kissing and having sex in the office. When investigators questioned Sheila's neighbors, many of them thought Mike lived with Sheila because he was such a frequent visitor of her home. When confronted about their rumored affair, both Mike and Sheila denied it. They claimed they were just good friends who worked together. The pair stuck with their story, even when presented with the fact that Mike had been paying Sheila's rent at her apartment since her divorce. Despite their stories, authorities collected blood and hair samples from Sheila 
and asked her if she had an alibi for the time Marlene was killed. But Sheila denied being the shooter. She claimed she'd been out repossessing cars in a totally different area that was far away from the Warren family home at the time of the murder. Sheila's shaky alibi was near impossible to substantiate, but police didn't have enough to hold her in custody. They had no other choice but to release her. Detectives wanted to cover all of their bases and dug deep into Mike and Marlene's lives, investigating all potential persons of interest. The couple had owned a lot of rental properties, so they wondered if it was possible that a disgruntled tenant had retaliated against the family. But after interviewing all of the tenants, the police discovered that Marlene was actually a very well-liked landlord. They moved on and checked out if a transaction through Mike's repo business at Bargain Motors had angered someone to the point of murder, but that also generated no substantial leads. The investigators even looked into the possibility that perhaps there was a clown serial killer that might be stalking women who lived in South Florida. Two years earlier, in Palm Beach, Lita Sullivan, the wife of a wealthy businessman, had opened her door to someone dressed as a clown. While handing her three dozen pink roses and candy, the clown shot and killed her. After contacting the other investigators, though, the police looking into Marlene's case determined there was no connection to Lita's murder. Eventually, it was proven that Lita's husband hired a hitman to kill his wife, and both Lita's husband and the hitman were jailed for her murder. As the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office crossed off all potential persons of interest one by one, the circumstantial evidence against Sheila continued to grow. For instance, there was the bullet that had been removed from Marlene's body. It was examined and to be found to be consistent with a 38 or 357 caliber gun. Sheila owned a 38 caliber gun that she carried with her for protection while on the job. She told a friend, I keep a gun for my protection because people are crazy. What they do, they'll come out with shotguns and shoot at you not to repo their car. But approximately a month before Marlene was shot, Sheila conveniently told her ex she had somehow misplaced the weapon. Also, employees at a costume shop came forward and said they had sold a clown costume to a woman who had been acting strangely just two nights before the murder. As the store was closing, a woman had pleaded to be let in. She told the two cashiers that she needed a full clown costume. Wig, nose, white gloves, colored tunic, face makeup, the whole deal. The woman paid $80 cash for her purchases and acted rushed and frantic. When the police showed the clerks a photo lineup, they identified Sheila. They particularly recalled her long brown hair and dark brown eyes. Then there was the description of a woman given by the employees at a Publix grocery store that was located 
only 1,500 feet from Sheila's apartment. They claimed that a woman who was wearing white gloves and who matched Sheila's physical description entered the store 90 minutes before Marlene was killed. While in the store, the customer purchased flowers and two balloons, identical to those that the clown had handed to Marlene just before she was shot. And when the police located the Chrysler LeBaron, evidence in the car was connected back to Sheila. The vehicle that the clown had used to leave the scene of the crime was found parked in a Winn-Dixie parking lot about eight miles from the Warren family home. In the Chrysler, investigators found orange synthetic fibers from a wig and strands of long brown human hair that appeared similar to Sheila's hair. The investigators ran the LeBaron's VIN number through their system, and they learned that the car had been reported stolen about a month before Marlene's murder. The report had been filed by Payless Auto Rental, one of Mike's biggest competitors. It turned out that a couple had rented the LeBaron from Payless, but when they went to return the car, they were confused by a misleading phone book advertisement Mike had intentionally placed to steal business from his competition. As a result, they accidentally returned the car to Bargain Motors and not pay less. A male employee at Bargain Motors told the couple to just leave the car parked out on the street and to leave the keys hidden under the visor. Against their better judgment, the pair followed the instructions. The LeBaron was reported stolen later that very night. The car thief was never caught. The owner of Payless suspected that Mike was somehow involved, but they were never able to prove it. Within hours of finding the getaway vehicle, the investigators applied for and received a warrant to search Sheila's apartment. During the search, they found orange synthetic fibers on Sheila's clothing that resembled those from a clown wig. Also, hair samples from the garbage can located in Sheila's washroom contained long strands of brown hair that seemed to match the hair they had discovered in the LeBaron. DNA tests were done on the synthetic fibers and the human hairs found in both Sheila's home and the rental car. However, DNA tests were still relatively new in the 1990s, and as a result, the tests were inconclusive. In May of 1991, a year after Marlene had been gunned down, a detective working on the case declared there was enough evidence to make an arrest. However, the state's attorney was unsure if the circumstantial evidence they had would be enough to convict Sheila. They believed the lack of physical evidence would make prosecuting Sheila for Marlene's murder too risky. So, without enough evidence to charge Sheila, Marlene's case went cold. Frustrated that they could not arrest Sheila for Marlene's murder or find some solid evidence linking Mike to the crime, the authorities did what they could to get some justice. While investigating if Mike had anything to do with the theft of the LeBaron, the investigators stumbled upon evidence of other crimes. The police discovered that Mike was running a chop shop out of Bargain Motors. He would steal vehicles 
alter them, and then resell them or rent them out. He also turned vehicles odometers back, filed false insurance claims, and dumped cars in Palm Beach County's canal system to get rid of evidence. The investigators eventually dug up enough evidence to accuse Mike of 66 crimes. Mike was found guilty on 43 counts of racketeering and odometer rollbacks. He received a nine-year prison sentence for these crimes, but was out in just under four years. Neither Mike nor Sheila was charged with Marlene's murder, and Sheila eventually moved out of the area. In 2002, the detectives were intrigued to learn that Mike and Sheila had gotten married in a tasteful, understated ceremony in Las Vegas. Shirley Twing, Marlene's mom, told the media how furious she was when she learned that Mike had married Sheila. She also thought that it pointed to Mike being involved in her daughter's murder. She said, I turned angry, remembering that Sheila killed my daughter, and he marries her? There's got to be something there. Regardless of what anyone may have thought, roughly 12 years after Marlene's death, newlyweds Mike and Sheila moved to historic Abington, Virginia, and started a new life. Near Kingsport, Tennessee, Mike and Sheila opened up a fast food restaurant called The Purple Cow. The business was known for its delicious burgers, and it did very well. The couple was able to purchase a 4,100-square-foot home in an exclusive subdivision. Their lakefront home had many luxuries, including a private dock where they could moor their boat. By all accounts, the members of Mike and Sheila's new community found them to be a hard-working, generous, and sociable couple. They were the kind of people you called if you ever needed help. Mike was even known to hug his friends whenever they greeted each other. No one had any idea that either Mike or Sheila had been married before or that they previously lived in Florida. Even more astonishing is the fact that no one even knew Sheila's real name. Ever since her and Mike moved to the area, Sheila went by the name Debbie Warren. Years went by, and Mike and Sheila appeared to be head over heels in love as ever. In 2013, Mike updated his Facebook status announcing, I can't wait to get home and be back in my baby's arms. Trouble, however, was brewing for the lovebirds. In 2013, the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office formed a task force to reinvestigate Marlene's murder. Lead cold case investigator Paige McCann reached out to the FBI and requested that new DNA tests be run on all of the evidence, even though the DNA tests carried out decades earlier had been inconclusive. The department believed that advances made in DNA technology could finally lead to a break in the case. Sheriff Rick Bradshaw with the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office commented on how significant the advances in DNA technology had been over the years, comparing it to the evolution of the cell phone. You were talking about the technology. The, the difference is 
Remember the days when we had the cell phones that were about this wide, like a brick? And now we got smartphones that you can do everything on? That's the difference between the technology back when this happened and today. It's exponentially so much better to assist us in making sure that we have the right person. After re-interviewing countless witnesses, and with the new DNA test results in hand, the cold case team turned the case over to a grand jury in August of 2017. Before too long, an indictment was handed down for Sheila's arrest for the murder of Marlene Warren. Although the detectives did not announce what the new DNA testing revealed, it was rumored that the DNA testing matched hair found in the Chrysler to Sheila. The authorities noted that without the exemplary work of the original detectives, Marlene's case would have remained cold. Lead cold case investigator McCain explained, The detectives during the initial investigation, uh, Detective Bill Williams and the rest of uh, his team did a phenomenal job documenting the entire case, um, as well as collecting and preserving the crime uh, evidence from the crime scene. I like to say that um, in cold cases, we kind of we have a big puzzle and some of the pieces are already filled in. And a lot of it was already filled in by the uh, thorough investigation done by the initial detectives. We just needed a few of those little pieces of the puzzle. And we were able to uh, do that um, with DNA, the new technologies and DNA. And we were able to complete the puzzle. And I think that's what led to the indictment. With the last piece of the puzzle in place, it was time to arrest Sheila. On Tuesday, September 26, 2017, the police staked out Mike and Sheila's home. To avoid any type of violent confrontation, local police set up what looked like a routine roadblock. Minutes after Mike and Sheila pulled out of their driveway in their black Cadillac Escalade, they were pulled over. 27 years after Marlene's murder, Sheila was arrested without incident. According to the detectives, during her arrest, Sheila displayed a nonchalant attitude and even smiling during her booking photo. Her brazen behavior did not surprise the authorities one bit. After being charged with the first-degree murder of Marlene Warren, Sheila was extradited to Palm Beach County, Florida on October 3rd, 2017. She is currently being held without bond in a Palm Beach County jail awaiting trial. Even though Sheila waived her right to a speedy trial and pleaded not guilty to the first-degree murder charge, the jury selection is not set to begin until the end of January 2020 for what is thought to be a month-long trial. The prosecutors have made it clear that they will be seeking the death penalty. The state has released upwards to 200 pages of documents outlining the evidence that they plan to use in the trial. These files include all the circumstantial evidence against Sheila that was already known to the public, such as the witnesses who placed her buying the clown outfit at the costume shop and the cashier who sold her the flowers and balloons at the Publix, as well as the new DNA evidence that will undoubtedly take center stage. 
The prosecution files also contain some additional information that will be covered at the trial, including jailhouse letters Sheila has written. In the letters, Sheila professed her love for Mike from behind bars, reflecting on how hard it is for her to be separated from him. She wrote, There are no words to describe how much I love and miss you. I feel so empty inside, and my whole body aches for you. You are a part of me, and I will always feel you with me, even though you are many miles away. I long to be in your arms, to share all of these feelings with you. In many of the letters, Sheila also proclaimed that she had nothing to do with Marlene's death. She explained to her mom, I just don't understand why we can't get this nightmare over with. Innocent people shouldn't be made to sit in jail this long, waiting on a trial to prove their innocence. And to Mike, Sheila noted killing Marlene would go against her character. She said, That's not me, but I know the world is full of evil and wrongdoing. Since Sheila's arrest, Mike has stood by his current wife, telling everyone that there is no way she had anything to do with Marlene's murder. Some of the other chilling information in the prosecution's documents include a witness statement that indicates Sheila told a former employee she had dressed like a clown and killed Marlene. Apparently, after one too many drinks, Sheila revealed that she had picked out a clown outfit and killed Mike's wife and then drove off. She said that her and Mike really wanted to get married sooner, but they had to wait for the attention on the case to die down. Other previous employees reported it should be easy to find numerous photos of Sheila in clown costumes over the years, as dressing like a clown was something she often did for a laugh. And at least one photo of Sheila dressed as a clown was included in the prosecution's evidence collection. Even with the mounting evidence against her, Sheila's lawyer, Richard Lubin, said his client vehemently denies murdering Marlene. Lubin maintained Sheila is innocent and pointed to how much of the state's case is circumstantial. He told reporters, they've arrested the wrong person. This case is 100% circumstantial. There is nothing that links Sheila to the crime. Time will tell if a jury agrees. At least one big unanswered question remains. What about Mike? From the very beginning, the detectives working on the case believed there were two primary suspects in Marlene's murder, Sheila and Mike. At a press conference shortly after Sheila's arrest, lead cold case detective McCann reiterated this belief stating, the case is still ongoing, and we will work diligently to determine if anyone else is involved. Although Mike has never been charged with any involvement in Marlene's death, her family believes he was involved. Acknowledging this has been especially difficult for Joe, Marlene's surviving son. Joe explained that Mike was his only dad he knew for over 20 years. But before his mother's death, Joe had noticed a change in his mom and stepdad's relationship. At the time, he chalked it up to the lingering effects of his brother Johnny's tragic death.
Now he thinks it was, in fact, much more. Mike was barely around and had stopped emotionally supporting the family. Two weeks before she was murdered, Marlene mentioned to her son that they were going to be moving. One cannot help but wonder if Marlene had picked up on Mike and Sheila's affair, and somehow the lovers figured out they were on borrowed time and took action. Marlene's mom, Shirley, is also positive Mike had a hand in her daughter's murder. In fact, when Shirley was told Marlene had been shot, her mind immediately turned to Mike. Marlene's mom spoke to the authorities and let them know that her daughter had confided in her that she thought Mike was having an affair. Marlene wanted out of her marriage, but Marlene had realized that many of their assets were in her name and she was concerned about what Mike would do if she tried to get a divorce. She told her mom, if anything happens to me, Mike did it. Over the years, the investigators cobbled together some evidence that suggests Mike could have played a role in Marlene's murder. It was believed that as well as getting rid of Marlene so he could be with Sheila, Mike wanted his wife dead for financial reasons. If Marlene was dead, he wouldn't have to share their assets like he would have if they were going through a divorce. And many of the assets had been in Marlene's name for tax purposes. A few of Mike's employees came forward and told the police he had mentioned that there was no way he would ever divorce Marlene. It would cost him too much. He would be better off if she was dead. On top of all this, Marlene had a seven-figure life insurance policy, further suggesting that money may have been a key motivator for Mike. He battled his stepson Joe over Marlene's estate, ultimately leaving the young man next to nothing. Then, there is the bizarre story that local criminal defense attorney Christopher DeSantis shared with the investigators working on Marlene's case. About a year after Marlene's murder, the attorney revealed that when he'd been representing Marlene's son Joe in an unrelated manner, Mike had approached him and asked a disconcerting question. Mike asked what the ramifications would be if a husband killed his wife on her estate. DeSantis informed the police he told Mike that if the husband used an accomplice to commit the crime and couldn't be tied to that friend as an accessory, he would get off scot-free. This scenario seemed eerily similar to Marlene being gunned down by an anonymous killer in a full clown costume. And finally, a witness recently came forward with what appeared to be significant evidence implicating Mike in Marlene's murder. A man named John Moran Sr. had worked with Mike at Bargain Motors. He was already known to the police because a few weeks after Marlene's murder, he reported that Mike had repeatedly said how much he hated Marlene and wished that she was dead. But after Sheila's arrest in 2017, John Moran Sr.'s son contacted investigators and revealed that he had helped his father get rid of a vehicle that contained evidence linked to Marlene's murder. According to John Moran Jr., at the time, he didn't realize the vehicle 
he and his dad had dumped in the canal system played a vital role in Marlene's case. For years, he thought it was just the typical stolen vehicle dumping that took place while his dad worked at Bargain Motors. But from his dad's deathbed, in February of 1996, his dad told John Moran Jr. that the vehicle was actually a second getaway car used during Marlene's murder and that it contained all of the clothing everyone was wearing that day, even the clown costume. His dad told him that since he knew the location of the car, he could get anything he ever wanted from Mike. John Moran Jr. went on to tell the police that after Sheila's arrest, Mike had called him and tried to bribe him to buy his silence. When the investigators checked out the phone records, they were able to partially substantiate John Moran Jr.'s story. Records showed that someone had used a burner phone to call John Moran Jr. right around the time he had told police Mike had begun calling him. Whoever was on the other end of the burner phone spent over 200 minutes talking to John Moran Jr. over the course of several calls. Because owners do not have to provide their name when they buy a burner phone, it's impossible to know who exactly owned the phone used to contact John Moran Jr. However, the burner phone's call log also showed that the very same phone was used to call Sheila's defense attorney, Richard Lubin, on several occasions. This was enough to convince the authorities to search the canal system for the mystery car. Police divers located a 1982 Audi 4000S in the exact spot where John Moran Jr. said he and his dad dumped the second getaway vehicle. The vehicle's contents, however, failed to live up to expectations. Inside the vehicle, investigators found tube socks, blue and red pieces of cloth, and a shoe sole. No clown costume or murder weapon was found further calling John Moran Jr.'s story into question. When the police ran the Audi's VIN number through their database, they learned it was reported stolen in 1987. This means it was likely already in the canal three years after Marlene was killed. When asked why the contents of the vehicle failed to match his story, John Moran Jr. claimed that the detectives had pulled up the wrong car. He said they needed to dive again. It's unclear whether or not the police will continue their search. But one thing is certain. Their suspicion that Mike was somehow involved in Marlene's murder is as strong today as it was way back in 1990. Marlene's unsolved murder consumed Wellington, Florida for decades. The quiet, exclusive neighborhood where she once lived was never the same. Wellington's first mayor, Kathy Foster, recalled how Marlene's murder impacted everyone who lived there. She said, it was very overwhelming to think someone could ring your doorbell and kill you at the front door of your own house. Due to the recent progress in the case, the community has finally had a chance for closure. Following Sheila's arrest, Sheriff Rick Bradshaw, with the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, listed the multitude of reasons 
why closing this cold case was important to the community. There's a lot of reasons that this is important to the community. Number one, to give closure to the victim's family of any homicide, regardless of what it is. I think we have almost 300 cold cases still outstanding. And there was a gentleman back here that says, well, you, you think that the people that were involved in this one kind of forgot about the whole thing? Well, I can tell you one thing. We, we will never forget about any of these 300 cases. And that's what the families and the, of the victims of these cases need to know, that every single day these cold case detectives are working to find these people. And the other thing that the community needs to know, especially the people who perpetrated these crimes, we will find out who did this in these cases. We will. And then once we do, we will find out where you are, and we will come and find you. I don't care where you're at. It could be in the United States. It'll be in another country. We will come and find you. We've gone out of the country to find other people that have committed crimes. But that's the message to the families. We won't forget you. And to the people that perpetrated this, we're going to come and get you. So they're not going to forget it because we're not going to forget it. And that's the message that the community needs to take away from this. Marlene's family has also spent years in the pursuit of justice and some sense of closure. Her stepfather, Bill, expressed that the first two years were terrible. But as the years passed, it seemed to get even worse. With no resolution, the frustration grew with each day that passed. In 2017, after learning about Sheila's arrest, Marlene's mom told the media, it was a kind of sigh of relief, and it kind of choked me up a bit. Because, you know, sometimes I feel like crying when I'm talking about it. We'll never forget Marlene. She was a lovely person. Thank you. That's all I can say. I had faith. They never gave up. You know, if that got it in their mind to do so, eventually, it works out for them and me. Marlene's son, Joe, has worked hard for years to recover from witnessing the murder of his mom. He struggled for a long time with drugs and alcohol. He got married, but the relationship faltered and ended in divorce. He's revealed that for years, he felt numb and abandoned, like he was all on his own. For Joe, not a day passes that he doesn't think about his mother and attributes getting his life back on track to his mom. He told one reporter, I just couldn't put it together for a long time. I finally got myself together and knew well what she would want me to do. She would want me to carry on. She would want me to do the best I could. You know, just try to get happiness in my life. And Joe is doing exactly that. He eventually moved to Iowa and started his own construction company, where he draws on skills he learned from helping his mom Marlene manage the family's rental properties. Though Joe's mom was selfishly torn from his life, the spirit and memory of her will continue to live on within him as he continues to build a new life upon the enduring foundation of her love.
Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, Euphemid, hosted by Jim Perry. You may remember him from our episode titled, The Devil Made Me Do It Case. He was a great help to us in that episode, and I've been listening to his show for a while now. And here's Euphemid. A beam of light came out from behind this mountain. The light that was radiating out zoomed back into the center. And then we immediately thought that it was a UFO. Sometimes when you go looking for a monster, you might just find one. True paranormal experiences from real people. Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. Find it now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search the Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by the Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run